Hello, podcasting world. Hello, Instagram Live. We are back with another episode of Core Console RX Podcast. Sorry, we've been gone for what? It's been a while. Two weeks now. A little over two weeks. I, I know. Think. Two and a half. Yeesh. Um, obviously, the culprit here is <sighs> uh, Cole because he went and got married and uh. had to go on the longest honeymoon ever. So. <laughs> Well, yeah. they let me off, so I mean, what am I going to do? Yeah, know? no, I would have done the same thing. It was way, probably way more fun than I was going to have here. Feeling great, though. Yeah. Lots of energy. Heck yeah. Basically slept for like eight or nine hours a night. Wow. I don't know that I've ever done that in my whole life. <laughs> that's so that's was, a lot. It was awesome. Um, so, how was it? I mean, how was, was the wedding go off without a hitch? I mean, wedding went did anybody off, crash? As far as I know, I mean, I'm married, so it worked out. No, that's cool. Uh, honeymoon was in Hawaii. Highly recommended. It was awesome. Heck yeah. You look to the left and you have ocean, and then to the right, you've got like a tropical rainforest. That's awesome. It's incredible. Did you guys do some hiking and stuff? Oh, yeah. Mountains. Oh, she had me run all over the place. Well, I was exhausted. She in better shape than you are? Oh, yeah. Much better. <laughs> That's the worst. She said she had to fit into the wedding dress. Yeah. I was over here like a lard yeah. right before I'll the wedding. I'll just get back in your pants. <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> I probably gained eight pounds. How was the food? Oh, it was great. We ate out all the time. Were you guys like on like a resort or were you going to no. different hotels or how does it we work? We were at a hotel for one island, then we hopped over to another and we stayed in a condo um, and then we just did whatever we wanted. That's that awesome. awesome. Very, very cool. Snorkeling, hiking, the whole bag. Heck yeah. Um, so what about, uh, how much time did you have set aside for evidence-based medicine studying? Uh, at least an hour a day. Nice. I mean, you got to do it. Respect. <laughs> yeah, they, uh, you know, his uh, his new wife is going into, can I, is it cool if I talk yeah, about her stuff? Fine. Going into um, neurology fellowship, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That I think is, I mentioned at one point, too. Yeah, so she's... Uh, She's definitely... So she would have uh, been a good one to have on today. Couldn't be a rock star. Yeah. Yeah, she would have been actually perfect for this. Why didn't we invite her? <laughs> I don't her? know. I didn't think about that. You didn't think about that? <laughs> She's at the gym, so... Mm. She probably, probably should be at the gym, too, and yeah. said, uh, you just sit here. Sit here drinking Monster, Monster and energy. whatever's in this blue thing. and uh, Probably water. You're well, healthier than maybe. I am. Maybe. I don't know. But, uh, yeah, so, like I said, uh, neurology is kind of our topic today. We're going to do some multiple sclerosis. Mm-hmm. And by math. some, I mean we're going to try to fight our way through this. You know, it's funny because a lot of our episodes, we stumble through pronunciations. Even though we're pharmacists, we still don't know how to pronounce things. Mm-hmm. Today might be a... Uh, it's one of those days. It's one of those days. <laughs> <laughs> it's fine. That's why we got, a, that's why we got somebody that rated us a two <clears throat> on iTunes. Ah, oh, jeez. Oh, I'm that, sure it was for the pronunciations. Mm-hmm. What are we doing? I can tell. And you know, you can't look them up on Google because that little recording on YouTube is not right. Most oh, it's of the time. not. There's one today where I looked it up and Anna's like, that's not how you pronounce it. And I was like, yeah, it is. Google said. Yeah, it's and, on YouTube, Anna. Be and, quiet. And she said no. And we did a little more research and sure enough. She's right. Tysabri. Oh, yeah. It's not Tysabri. I swear I heard somebody say that one time. Mm. That's, and, and Google said it. That's the only reason. Google doesn't know. But I, they right. never know. Natalismab. That's yeah, the way. That's, that's the, the way. It, you say it right, and people think you're a lot smarter. <laughs> say you actually and are. right and confidently. Super confident. That's the key. It's just when you're recorded, people can, you know. Back it up and be like, oh, this guy's a moron. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Unfortunately. That's why you get a two on iTunes. They basically just take snippets of our podcast and post them on YouTube videos, and that's how people think stuff is pronounced. Mm. Mm. Stinking Google. I know figure it out what are they doing tech giants <laughs> uh, all right so what do you want to start let's, let's get cracking on this yeah people so, are tired of listening to me talk so what is uh what's ms and we'll just call it ms for the sake of time um but it's it's actually an audio autoimmune situation uh attacking myelinated axons in the cns destroying myelin destroying the axons um 
sometimes quickly, sometimes over the course of 20 to 25 years more often. And sometimes it's really not all that significant and the patient may not see significant disability throughout their life. Uh, but more commonly, about 20 to 25 years and about a third of patients are going to see significant um, quality of life changes as far as uh, physical symptoms, which we'll go through a little bit. Uh, so sensory loss, like paresthesias, those are pretty common and usually the most early complaint. Uh, other spinal cord symptoms, motor issues, muscle cramping, uh, usually they'll have autonomic issues along with that, bladder and bowel issues, as well as sexual dysfunction, optic neuritis, eye symptoms, um, the whole gamut. Uh, interestingly, the, um, the length of life, I guess, is only slightly decreased. Uh, but it's the quality of life that is the concern in these patients. So um, we'll talk about the um, disease-modifying therapies as well as symptomatic therapies as we go through. Sounds good. So you want to just kind of kick it off, start talking about some of the treatment options? Let's do it. Yeah, and I guess before that, there's there's four classifications yeah, too. Yeah, I guess we should mention that. Yeah, because it, it... We really need an outline. kind of depends on, you know, what you use, you know, where. Exactly. Uh, but the relapsing, remitting... MS is the most common. About 85% of patients have relapsing remitting MS. Have you seen um, The West Wing? Mm. Okay. It's really good. It's on uh, Netflix. It's from like the late 90s, early 2000s political drama. Um, and this is a spoiler alert for anybody who thinks they're going to go back and watch West Wing, but um, <laughs> the main character has relapsing remitting MS, so they talk mm. about that a lot. And he was um, getting beta seron injections from his MD wife, so hmm. it's pretty interesting. Cool. Um, and then secondary progressive MS and primary progressive MS and then progressive relapsing MS are the four types. And um, there's a, a video on YouTube actually by a group called Osmosis. Um, <laughs> if you guys haven't seen them, you definitely should check them out. They're pretty awesome. Um, but uh, they have a group, like a video that kind of explains the pathophysiology behind MS and um, talk through some of the, the, the different classifications and what that looks like. Um, it's definitely a, a very good video. So check that out if you have 11 minutes to spare it's really well made it's a I good will. it's a good group yeah i've watched a couple of their videos now. osmosis yeah osmosis okay. it's good good group shout out to osmosis <laughs> um <clears throat> so you know well i guess you, you already brought up a beta seron so interferon um was some of the you know the first products we had available to kind of uh basically the point of um, treatment with MS is not to cure. Right. It's to stop from having further progression. Right. And so, you know, when we say treatment options, we're more talking maintenance right. than actual treatment. Uh, but interferon was the first uh, medication we, we it was widely used. Um, and there's several different formulations of it. And so you have like Avinox, uh, which is an IM injection. It's done weekly. Um, there's a Rebif, which is three times per week subcutaneously. And then there's things like beta seron and a couple others um, that uh, you can do every other day. Um, and then there's also a pegylated version. And uh, so pegylation is where they take polyethylene glycol and uh, attach it to the compound. And it just makes it more of an extended release formulation. Right. So that one's good for 14 days per injection. Um, but yeah, it's, it's basically going to um, alter the expression and response of the surface antigens. Um, so you're enhancing the immune cell function and you're basically stopping your T cells from attacking itself. Right. And, um, you know, kind of reversing the process, at least getting it to calm down. Some right. of the damage that's done may not be reversible, but, 
you know, I'm keeping it just kind of from getting worse and, and stop that exacerbation. And you'll see that's a trend throughout these disease-modifying therapies. It's, it's an autoimmune disease, so they're going to attack the immune system, uh, try to prevent further progression. Uh, generally, I think these therapies work better in relapsing. Is, is that right? Mm-hmm. As far as yeah, you're yeah, for sure. Um, it's most effective there, or you'll at least see the best benefit, but we'll talk about where you might switch around therapies. But uh, generally, that's a pretty, the decision there is pretty complex, and it takes um, a whole treatment group, neur- neurologic treatment group, to decide what the patient should get. But um, there are some concerns with interferon, specifically one is psychiatric disorders like depression and suicide, which would, of course, be pretty common in a disease that's so debilitating. Uh, also, injection site reactions or necrosis over time because you're getting a lot of injections depending on which formulation you're using uh, increased liver function tests and then thyroid dysfunction of some sort either hyper or hypo over time uh, can also happen so you'd want to monitor for that yeah absolutely um, the other adverse effect that you know the ones cole mentioned are obviously the more serious uh, adverse effects um, some of the more common ones that most patients will have to deal with um, is flu-like symptoms following administration um, you know, this can last minutes, it can last up to hours, um, depending on the formulation, sometimes even longer. Uh, and patients will often use acetaminophen or some, uh, one of the NSAIDs prior to the injection to hopefully uh, stop some of the symptoms. Um, interferon was what they were originally using in, um, like hep C. Right. And, uh, they were using longer formulations of it. And so, you know, patients that were being treated for hep C back in the day were given interferon with not a great... Uh, curate and they would feel terrible and by the time they started feeling better again it was time for their their next right. injection so uh, interferons potentially is pretty nasty it's not a pleasant drug no that's for sure um, you know for the pharmacist listening make sure that uh, if you're educating the patient on administration um, make sure that they know that they need to take it out of the refrigerator and let it uh, kind of warm up to room temperature before they inject it um, you know, it's, it'll burn pretty badly. It's, say, you, it's just for how it feels. Yeah, right? yeah it doesn't do anything. It's not going to cause harm, but it will hurt. And uh, there is a small air bubble in the pre-filled syringes because a lot of these are either in a pen um, or a pre-filled syringe. Um, just like in like the Lovenox, the anoxaparin, um, there's a small bubble there. You don't have to expel that. It's just just an air bubble there. It's meant there to give you the right, you know, the proper dose. Um, go ahead and administer that. It's not going in the veins or anything like that. So. Right. Um, nothing to, to worry about there. Not going to have an aneurysm. Sure won't. We don't think. Yeah, so um, interferon, that's what you're looking at first. And I don't know that you can really put a lot of these first line, second line. I think it just kind of depends, right? Yeah, we'll, we'll talk. Like, once we go through, I'll sh- like talk about. I've seen one group that breaks it down pretty well. Right. Um, but we'll. Uh, there, there's. It's really going to be patient specific. And even the new. Um, American Academy of Neurology guidelines that came out somewhat recently, uh, they they don't necessarily um, have a specific like path to follow. It's really right. based on um, patient comorbidities, uh, patient's tolerance, and just the way they respond to the initial treatment. Right. So another option is Copaxone or Glotopa. Uh, it's an immune modulator that induces or is thought to induce and activate T lymphocyte suppressor cells, uh, specifically in the relapsing form of MS. Um, so that's another thing you could consider, glutirum or acetate. 
Maybe that's how you pronounce it. Maybe that's Clitimer, how Google would yeah. pronounce it. Who knows? Yeah. Um, but uh, chest pain is common with this one and also lipoatrophy. Um, so those would definitely be concerns there. Mm-hmm. Um, and injection site reactions are very, very common. Um, infections are possible. Dyspnea, um, you know, those are also things to worry about. Um, and then also, same thing, you don't want to inject cold. Uh, and then also making making sure when any of these injectables that you are encouraging patients to rotate their injection sites. Um, arms, abdomen, hips, thighs um, are okay for the uh, capaxone. And so making sure that they're rotating sites so they're not um, increasing the risk of infection and things. Yeah, it seems a little different than insulin where it's like, yeah, just kind of rotate around that same yeah. site since it's so significant you really want to move sites. Yeah, right? and I'm sure there's people that do just rotate around the same site. Right, but, yeah. you know, it's definitely uh you're able to administer more than just the abdomen if you want it's more than just discomfort you're concerned for an actual infection or necrosis right Mm -hmm. yeah and we got um somebody on instagram saying uh don't forget diet um so i definitely agree i i am not familiar enough with the you know diet that's associated with uh ms to be able to talk educatedly about it um not that i'm doing it right now with with the meds but um you know definitely uh let me know what you have and we'll uh we'll put your thoughts on here someone knows post it we'll shout it out yes for sure but yeah i'm I'm not i'm not familiar with anything that might um prevent the progression of the well i've seen i have seen stuff on the diet i've just never done much i haven't done much research on it just because i don't deal with patients that have ms hardly ever all right, so um, what do you want to go now? The teraflunamide? Yeah, that's the next option. Um, that's a oral option. So the first two we talked about were injectables. Um, this is going to be an oral tablet, so that's great if you have a patient that obviously doesn't want to um, inject. Uh, oh, she's saying low protein. Gotcha. Uh, yeah, 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 that makes yeah, sense. Yeah. Gotcha. Appreciate it. Um, and so um, this is a drug that's great if you don't want to have to inject yourself you know, every other day or once a week or whatever. Um, it is the active metabolite of leflunamide. Um, and so, uh, it is, uh, a black box warning, um, for hepatotoxicity and chemical reacts for pregnancy. So completely contraindicated in pregnancy. And, um, there is, however, a, something they call accelerated elimination of the drug, which I, I was looking up this for, uh, leflunamide the other day, um, because I haven't, I had never seen anybody that's actually gone through this but if you have a patient that let's say you know a female that wants to become pregnant and she needs this because the drug lasts so long in the system um, one of the ways to get that out of your system quickly is to uh, they do like this really high dose um, cholecystamine uh, mm. dosing over a few days and mm. it basically just collects it all binds it and gets it out of your system doesn't seem like that'd be so, pleasant uh, yeah no but um, it's like a prep it's kit definitely, uh, for leflunamide it's definitely something that um is in there. Um, Up-to-date's got a pretty good breakdown of it, and uh, so check that out. But that's an option, too. So maybe, it is Category X, but if you need to get rid of it, you can. So maybe in lieu of an antidote, just get it out. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So that's uh, teraflunamide. There's also fingolimod, um, gelinia. It's also an oral option, capsule. Um, it's converted into fingolimod phosphate binds to sphingosine 1-phosphate receptors, um, and it's thought to block the lymphocytes' ability to emerge from the lymph nodes. So um, another immunomodulator. Uh, also has some warnings and contraindications. So it would be contraindicated in most patients with a history of cardiovascular disease or stroke. Uh, you also want to monitor their heart rate because they can cause bradycardia. Um, 
So monitor at least six hours after the first dose and get a baseline ECG as well. Uh, a couple other things to look out for as far as adverse effects. Uh, macular edema, so they will need eye exams. Also monitor LFTs and CBC uh, that can have myelosuppression and potentially uh, hepatotoxicity. And then uh, another oral agent, actually, um, dimethyl furate. Um, the dimethyl fumarate is Tecfidera. Now, that's one that I, at least I've seen a lot of commercials for mm-hmm. Tecfidera. Um, so I'm sure you've at least seen this one at some point. Um, when but, I was looking this up, there was a little pop-up ad right there. Tecfidera. Really? It oh, yeah. knew. It knew. They yeah. want to sponsor us, most likely. Oh, if you do, let <laughs> yeah, us know. Yeah, just let us know. <laughs> um, but uh, so basically, it's going to um, activate nuclear factor like two pathways, um, which is thought to be involved with like your cellular response to oxidative stress, um, and so you're kind of combating the the inflammation, the the properties, the damage that T cells are causing from a kind of a different path. Um, it definitely can cause a flushing type reaction, and so some patients will kind of. Uh, use like aspirin 30 minutes prior to a dose um, before yeah, they, you know, with, with each dose, they take it 30 minutes prior and then also taking it with food can help. Um, but hepatotoxicity, also a possibility with this drug. So you'd want to monitor LFTs. And then uh, neutropenia is also something you'd have to watch out for. So you'd want to monitor the CBC as well. And uh, it is reversible. So if you have a patient that starts having some neutropenia, you can stop the drug and it, everything should kind of normalize. Yeah, very common issues for anything that acts on the immune system, right. for sure. Uh, and then we referenced this one earlier. It's an IV option, but it's uh, Tysabri or natalizumab. Uh, so it actually binds to the alpha-4 subunit of integrins expressed on the surface of leukocytes, again, acting on the immune system. Uh, it does have a pretty important black box warning. So there is the risk for progressive multifocal leukoencephalopathy or PML. Uh, It's basically a viral infection uh, that affects the brain um, caused by John Cunningham virus or JC virus is usually how they refer to it. Um, And it can lead to severe disability or even potentially death. Um, So it actually has a REM program called TOUCH um, or T-O-U-C-H and uh, to be dispensed and the um, patient would have to be tested for the JC virus uh, throughout treatment with this one. All right can cause some infusion reactions because this one is IV. Um, infusion reactions, fatigue, depression, um, and, you know, obviously depression is something that we have to watch out for in, in patients with MS anyway, and so um, that's not great that we're potentially increasing that risk, but um, it is a, an effective drug, so it's something to, to keep in mind. And then um, abdominal, back pain, things like that, um, common side effects. Um, now, one of the things to be aware of is that, uh, and this was actually a statement from the new American Academy of Neurology guidelines for MS, um, physicians sh- must counsel people, um, must counsel patients that have MS that are considering stopping uh, natalizumab uh, after they've been on it for a period of time, uh, you know, whether it's just time to switch to a different drug or they're having adverse effects or whatever the case may be. Um, they need to discuss with them that there is a very large increased risk of um, an MS, MS relapse um, or an MRI-detected disease activity within only six months of discontinuation. Mm. And so, and I know there's some studies, I, I want to say there was one that compared natalizumab and then switching directly over to fengolimod. Um, but so there's some limited data there to show what to actually switch to would be best, but, um, definitely something that you would want to sit down and talk with the patient that, Hey, if you are going to come off this drug, there is a chance that you could have a relapse and, um, you know, further the progression of 
the, the disease state. So I guess the reason they might want to come off of it is if they had an inadequate response or maybe intolerable side effects. Right. Because the idea, I think, behind these is that they're lifelong right. um, treatments, right? Well, and I think, yeah, and I think it's it's more so to do with quality of life. And if when we talk about the actual algorithm, like, that's more what they... Right. Start cool. Like that's after they start the treatment. Is it working like effectively as far as symptom relief? And then how is the quality of life aspect? Right. So I think that's a really big. Because um, that's ultimately what you're treating exactly. Here. It's it's not something as arbitrary as preventing um, you know cardiovascular disease risk ten years down the road from diabetes. It's just you know how are you feeling? Is this is this making you better? Making you feel better or not? Quality of life situation. Right. Yeah. Tough disease. Uh, so the next is also an IV monoclonal antibody, but it's Lemtrada or Alemtuzumab. Uh, it mechanism of action it binds to the CD52, which causes alteration um, in the number, proportions, and properties of some lymphocytes, um, lymphocyte subsets following treatment. But uh, it it has um, dosing at the beginning. You kind of do a load, and then you do um, something different for the second treatment. Um, and then you uh, administer 12 months after the second one comes 12 months after the first treatment. Course, yeah, right? which that's pretty cool because you, know, you give first treatment and it's, it's 12 milligrams per day of an IV infusion over five days and then you're done for 12 months. You don't have your second treatment, which is three more days until 12 months after the first treatment and then you're you're done as well. And it's an effective drug, but there's a ton of side effects with yeah. it. Um, and so you have the, a lot of risks and sometimes the risk outweighs the benefits with this drug and then uh it's also very expensive yeah. I, want, I want to say it's like one hundred fifty thousand dollars for the full treatment i have for the to, year don't quote me on that but Jeez. i want to say it's for the whole treatment the eight days total it's very very expensive i guess if the idea is quality of life instead of injecting once a week or three times a week you know yeah uh, fusion over a few days once yeah. a year it's yeah. like zolendronic acid for uh for osteoporosis i guess similar yeah. situation if you got you know, yeah, yeah, 150 k, just yeah, burning a hole in your pocket. Go well, for it. I don't think people generally do. I yeah, wish I did. Unfortunately, yeah, me great. too. That would be cool. Maybe. Um, I'm looking at the price too. Um, but yeah, infusion site reactions um, are very, very common. Up to 90 percent of patients. Um, and there's you know headache, rash, nausea, some of the other things that we have to worry about. Right. Yeah. If we had 150 grand, we could probably upgrade the studio and maybe pay Steve more. Yeah, so or we can, upgrade, we can upgrade it regardless. We could, we could just do that. <laughs> just My wife will just, she won't be that mad at me, but maybe. It's better to ask forgiveness. It is. Um, so because of um, some of the negative side effects, the infusion site reactions, um, sometimes patients will be pre-medicated with really high dose corticosteroids um, immediately before the infusion um, for the first three days of the treatment. And so, you know, when we say high dose, I've seen numbers as high as 1,000 milligrams of methylprednisolone. Wow. Um, or, you know, that's an equivalent. Um, but that's, I mean, that's a humongous dose. And um, one of the things that I thought was interesting was they actually saw an increased incidence of herpes infections um, in the studies that were done to get this FDA approved. And so they actually recommend administering a herpes viral prophylaxis um, starting on the first day of treatment and then continuing for at least two months after um, completing the treatment um, or until the CD4 count is at least 200 cells per microliter um, or you know, whatever one comes last. And speaking of the corticosteroids, I guess it's important to mention in an acute relapse, sometimes they will use solumedrol or methylprednisolone um, to hasten the recovery from an acute exacerbation. Uh, in severe situations, they might also do a plasma exchange or plasmapheresis 
um, that can be, you know, potentially decreased short term or be used short term for severe attacks. Um, if the steroids don't work or if they're contraindicated in a patient, uh, or they might use dexamethasone for acute transverse myelitis and acute disseminated encephalitis potentially. So, uh, what we're generally talking about is long term management. Right. Um, 30 to 40% of patients using this drug can have impairment of thyroid function. And then uh, there's also been case reports of tuberculosis, um, meningitis caused by listeria, uh, several other pretty severe infections um, and issues that have come up. So definitely a drug that, you know, it might be effective, but a lot of concern, a lot of risk. Yeah. I don't know, you know, with the price other than the convenience Mm-hmm. And I guess it might work better than other stuff, but with the price, it would be hard to justify yeah. that high risk of issues. And I'd have to see, like, I, I don't deal with these these drugs enough to be able to talk through, like, you know, case management and things like that. I wonder how often it gets paid for. I'm, I'm sure right. there's definitely cases, yeah. You know, patients that are able to get it covered, but geez, it's expensive. Oh, yeah. All right. So, um, so acrolizumab yeah. is uh, the third IV drug we're going to talk about. Um, and you know, this one is administered once every six months. So a little bit, uh, not quite as, uh, convenient as the last one, but, um, still, uh, pretty good that you can do once every six month dosing. Um, still very expensive. Um, it does need to be pre-medicated with methylprednisolone and diphenhydramine, um, to prevent infusion reactions. And then it, this one is actually contraindicated in patients that have an active, uh, an active hepatitis B infection. Um, and then this drug is something that has now gotten approval, I believe FDA approval, for um, primary progressive mm-hmm. MS. So Instead it is just the relapsing form. And it's one of the only drugs that's been truly shown to, to slow that down. Um, so definitely something that uh, should be considered if the person can, can get on it for that type, of, that type of MS. Right. And the way it acts is depleting CD20, expressing B cells. Mm-hmm. Uh, another immune modulator. And the the um, reactivating, or I guess, um, exacerbating Hep B infection. You see a lot of that with the um, immunomodulatory drugs and the monoclonal antibodies. I'm surprised it hasn't popped up more other than j- just that one. But I'd be cautious in anyone with Hep B using most of these medications. Mm-hmm. Um, so kind of going through like who is going to actually be, um, started on which med right. and, you know, cause we don't have like a clear algo- algorithm to follow. Cause that's the majority of the disease modifying therapies. Right. At this point. Not all, not everything, but the majority. Right. Um, you know, we have to, one, we have to have a definitive diagnosis for relapsing MS or a different form. Um, and then we have to, you know, we're basing our treatment option on the, um, the patient after their first clinical attack, uh, um, even if we don't have a definitive diagnosis, we have to have at least an attack that's consistent with MS um, where other potential causes have kind of been excluded. And then patients with progressive MS um, that have had clinical relapses and or inflammatory activity, we need to start them on something. And so, you know, those any patients that could fall into one of those three groups need to be on some sort of a disease-modifying treatment option. Right. Um, and then, you know, like I said earlier, the, the actual choosing of which treatment disease modifying therapy you're going to use is very patient specific uh, as the guidelines say like it's extremely complex and it should be um, done according to whatever the patient's comorbidities are and, and all that so um, and like we said also if they're tolerating it well and it seems to be helping this is going to be a lifelong treatment for the 20 years 30 years or whatever it, it takes unless something better comes along 
or there's a reason that they need to stop that medication. Right. Um, and then also to just make sure that you talk to patients that, you know, the absence of a relapse does not mean that you should stop the therapy. Um, like we saw with natalizumab, uh, you know, you actually will get a high likelihood of having a relapse if you were to stop a drug like that and switch to something else. And so if a patient is having an absence of relapses, it's best to kind of talk them through as long as, they, as long as they can tolerate it to an extent, um, staying on that medication and keeping themselves from having another relapse. Right. And if you're going to switch, if there's a reason to, you probably want to switch to something that has a different mechanism of action. If it's similar, you know, and it wasn't working for them, go with something different. Yeah. But, um, you know, the, the guidelines definitely uh, recommend, which is easier said than done, but um, that patients and clinicians have access to all available therapies if necessary um, in order to significantly um, treat the MS population as best they can, um, regardless of contraindications, risk tolerance, you know, com compliance, all that. Um, they should have access to all the different meds that they can possibly use. Now, payments and all that stuff like that is not is is cut and dry as the guidelines make it out to be right. but um it's definitely something that if there's like rems programs or things like that that you should definitely get involved in so that you can um, provide whatever treatment option is available to your patients um, but i'm sure uh people who are dealing with this in neurology that's a no-brainer for them they know it's kind of what they do yeah so i heard <laughs> um so let's talk real quick about uh symptomatic management because right. that's the other piece of the puzzle with as far as um, quality of life. Right. And so th there's a lot of different uh, issues that can kind of come about well, for patients that have MS um, that aren't direct necessarily um, just the, you know, sh a plaque showing up on an MRI. Um, so a lot of patients will start to have problems with gait mm -hmm. um, over time and uh, you know, it's caused by spasticity, uh, weakness, um, there's all kinds of different factors that can kind of play a role, um, but there's definitely um, pharmacotherapy options that we can do. Uh, physical therapy um, is also an option, and, um, you know, we, we have to kind of treat that if a patient's complaining of it to make sure that their quality of life is staying where it needs to be. Right, and a lot of these issues are treatable. I mentioned some before, like incontinence, urgency, frequency, bladder issues. They can be treated. Um, sexual dysfunction can potentially be treated. Chronic pain syndromes are usually a neuralgia situation, um, so it's not so much you're looking at opioids, but you're looking at um, nerve therapies, I guess. Mm -hmm. uh, but also depression, like we said, and suicide risk is very high and very common over time, um, so that can be treated as well. And then fatigue, uh, Mike highlighted it before, but probably the biggest complaint um, of patients with MS, so they're, they're always trying to figure out what we can do to help with patients fatigue uh, and get them more active because interestingly exercise actually uh, helps long term you would think with muscle atrophy I guess not muscle atrophy but um, demyelination of the axons that uh, exercise may hurt but in the after the first three months it's actually shown to benefit long term if they can stay active and exercise so a big component to that is definitely the fatigue. Um, as far as like uh, other gait issues and things, you can use baclofen, um, dantrolene, and then they even use some of like uh, the the benzos like diazepam, um, muscle relaxers like tizanidine, things like that. Um, baclofen is probably the one I see more yeah. often than not. 
Um, and then for bladder symptoms, it really just kind of depends on what type of incontinence they're having. Um, nocturia, they, you know, you're, talk, you're looking at something like desmopressin. Um, if it's something that's like dealing with a um, just a regular incontinence, you, you, there's a anticholinergics you could potentially use. Um, alpha blocker. There's all kinds of things that we can kind of go to, just like if we were going to treat uh, someone with like um, BPH or something like that. Right. Or if, you know, if they were in a wheelchair, which commonly happens, they might just have to have a, a catheter. Cath, yeah. yeah. Um, and then you already mentioned uh, not using opioids, which is great. Um, you know, the pregabalin, uh, duloxetine, carbamazepine is sometimes used. Uh, the tricyclics are, can be used potentially. Um, but definitely trying to, if possible, stay away from opioids because there's a chance they could be on it long term. Right. And then uh, for fatigue, um, amantadine is something that they use a lot um, in fatigue for MS specifically, which amantadine was like a is like an antiviral right. drug from back in the day. Um, I have to. I, I wish I would have done this before we started recording, but I need to look up the mechanism behind how it helps with fatigue. I don't know off the top of my head. Well, I usually just wing it anyway. So yeah, that's true. <laughs> but um, yeah, amantadine is definitely one that. Uh, We've, we've tried all kinds of weird purposes for trying to fight off flu. Not really recommended anymore because <laughs> it doesn't work for, for anything. But um, there's also just your regular, like, stimulants. Um, and I've seen that as well where they'll patient will get methylphenidate or um, dextroamphetamine um, or then even some of, like, the narcolepsy stimulants like uh, modafinil or armodafinil um, as well. But uh, methylphenidate is probably your cheapest option and probably more effective than modafinil, I would think. Yeah, I would think so too. But um, definitely uh, making sure that the patient's quality of life is is comfortable and you're treating some of these um, symptomatic episodes that come up and uh, as well as just keeping them from having a relapse. And you weren't so off on the amantadine because it's an unknown mechanism. They don't know why. It See? Just, it works no wonder I didn't know exactly. it. Exactly. No one knows. If, if, if it was known, Mike would have known it. Of course. Obviously, so. Yeah. I was just trying to be super humble. But it's also used in Parkinson's. I was wondering where I saw I think I see it more in Parkinson's. Um, but it is used for fatigue in both. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, and, you know, there is a, for those of you who um, are, you know, use textbooks or things like that. Um, yeah, the, those, those people who the, use textbooks. Well, the, you know, <laughs> they, most people nowadays don't buy their textbooks. Yeah, that's true. Um, but there is a really good uh, algorithm in the DePiro pharmacotherapy textbook. For any of the pharmacy peeps listening, um, I'm sure you're familiar with that, um, that textbook. But um, it's a good breakdown of, you know, if once you've established whether or not it's relapsing, remitting, or progressive, or a, a rather primary progressive, then you can kind of um, walk through this this algorithm, and it talks about checking for JC virus, and then if you're already on something like um, fingolimod or dimethylfurate, and you're still having issues, or you convert to secondary progressive MS, um, then they're having you switch to things, uh, you know, like um, uh, alituzumab or one of the newer agents. So, um, natalizumab, definitely, uh, a pretty good long, complicated algorithm. So I won't go through it all, but, um, definitely know that, uh, there's not a clear path. I think we've kind of drilled that home for sure. So I think that handles it for the treatment, right? Yeah. For the most part. 
What else I have we got? some stats. Hit me with them. Uh, so it's actually a little more common than I thought. So in the U.S., they think about 58 to 95 people per 100,000 have MS, so about 400,000 people in the U.S. Not a whole bunch, but it's not, like, ridiculously rare. Mm-hmm. About 2.1 throughout the world, so um, relatively common. And like all autoimmune diseases, uh, it is more common in females than males, um, and it's becoming more common. So they think an estimated... Um, one or I guess the 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 ratio of male female to male has become more so now way more females have it than males almost twice as many so hmm. um, and the average age of diagnosis is twenty nine years in women thirty one years in men but can happen later. Good stuff. Yeah, that's a mess. And also, I mentioned the milder phenotype before, where it doesn't really progress uh, as significantly throughout their life. Only less than about 5-10% to 10% of patients actually have that milder phenotype. Um, that would be great if you were diagnosed with the milder, but also um, not extremely common. Right. And, you know, it's also something that I'm sure you mentioned earlier, but something that happens in kids, too. That's the... That's, yeah. it's, it's it's a horrible disease one way or the other, but, you know, when you see it happening in especially younger kids, it's like, geez. Right. Um yeah, it's it's a rough rough disease. It's an interesting thing because it's it's not the pathophys of MS that kills you. It's generally a secondary complication from MS um, that ends up killing you, which is why the uh, life expectancy is relatively similar. It's just the it's a quality of life thing, but it's definitely a tough disease. Absolutely. But uh, yeah, and, and we have a copy of the slide set. Uh, if you want, uh, we do have slides that kind of go through this same, you know, podcast, um, and then a actual like lecture format version, um, on patreon.com under core consult RX. And, uh, you can check that out if you want. And, um, but yeah, otherwise just enjoy, uh, listening to our soothing voices. Yeah. It's almost fall. Man, I'm excited fall. for it to get cooler. I am too. Okay. I'm over the I used to love, I used to dread when summer was ending. Really? Dread it. And now that I, you know, I have to be an adult, I'm like, I can't wait because I'm way too, it's way too hot to wear a lab coat. I know, I have to wear real clothes these days. Uh, yeah. But no, around it's, here, it's not even going to get cold to like the end of October. Mm-hmm. Oh, it gets cold for like a month and then it's yeah. blistering hot again. Yeah. So you have one month where you don't want to That like, being said, last winter was pretty cold. Yeah, it did snow last winter, didn't it? Yeah, there's the whole storm. I don't know what I'm talking about. The whole storm thing. It snowed a lot. It did snow a lot. I mm-hmm. forgot. That was interesting. Yeah, it was weird. Almost like my car. I was going to say, I almost crashed my car. Yeah, I did too. It was rough. <laughs> we don't know what we're doing down here. Yeah, we snow. really don't. Like literally. I think we recorded around that time when we commented on that. We did. Because yeah, in Charleston, South Carolina, when there's snow, even the tiniest bit, everyone loses their mind. Like and worse than the hurricane. Full panic mode. <laughs> Nobody has a clue how to drive in it, and we all crash immediately. <laughs> it's terrible. Similar things happen when it rains, but uh, yeah, we're not great can, drivers down I, here. <laughs> we're not known for our driving. What we're doing down here. Uh, too polite, I think. Mm, yeah. Not, not enough honking. Yeah, that's true. Like, there's a lot of... Hon- I hate it when I have a really good situation where I could have just really honked at somebody, and I forgot because I don't honk that much. Mm-hmm. I just want to show and them what's You for. thought about it afterwards. Yeah, it's like, oh, I totally could have honked Shoot. at Shoot. Then you honk, and you got... Like a little wimpy. Yeah, you, you know. yeah, you got to make sure it's a good one. I know. It's not the move. Anyways, that's the clear, yeah, you know, kind of <laughs> gateway discussion after MS. <laughs> But uh, yes, so that finishes it up, and we'll switch completely different random topic next time. Yeah, we take on anything. Yeah, 
I think it was the first neuro. We've had psych stuff. Yeah, I can't remember. I don't. Know. I have to look at my list. I, I shouldn't even say something like that because I, yeah, no I have no idea what, what we've, we've talked about. Talked don't about. you lie to us? <laughs> but uh, we definitely appreciate all the support we get from you guys, except for that guy who gave me a two or gave <laughs> gave us a two on the podcast rating. We're, yeah. we're gonna call you out. I don't like that guy. I'm just kidding. I still like you. It's fine. You're welcome. We like everybody. We like your opinion. As long as you know, we like feedback. Even though leave a comment if even, you're gonna leave a two. Well, so. actually, don't. Or maybe then, not. Then, then iTunes will actually knock our okay. our rating down. So uh, don't do that. I'll, I'll re- email us a comment. Yeah, email us a comment and tell us that, and then you know, and then put give us a five. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And just because your opinion's terrible, we will still <laughs> listen to it. But uh, yeah, we really appreciate all the support. Um, please send us a message if you have any questions or um, comments, concerns, whatever. Um, send it to uh, either one of us um, at uh, either mcorvino at coreconsolerx.com or uh, cswanson at coreconsolerx.com and, uh, or hit us up on any of the uh, social media platforms. That's probably the easiest way to get us. And uh, Instagram, Facebook, any of those. Um, we'll, we'll get back to you as quick as we can. But um, yes, thank you so much for listening, and we will see you guys next time. Later.